All right, remain standing, and we will recite our verse for this month. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 1 John four sixteen. Give yourselves a hand for that. Um, if you haven't already, the verse for next month is in the back. Uh, make sure on your way out you grab one of those um, so that we can get a head start on next week. Um, so as you notice, my voice is uh, abnormal today. I've been battling a sinus infection, sinus infection for the last week. Uh, Thursday, I had no voice whatsoever. Um, and so I texted Kayla and I said, hey, let me give you my, my notes for Bible study tonight. Can you lead uh, from my notes? And, and uh, graciously, she did and did a great job. Allison asked me, um, what are you going to do if, uh, if you don't have a voice on Sunday? And I was like, well, I manuscript my sermon, so somebody's going to have to stand up here and read it. So just stick to the script and we'll be fine. Um, but uh, she has been enjoying very much the fact that I can't talk this week. Um, but here we are. <laughs> so <coughs> excuse me as I struggle through this. So we're in the midst of a series entitled, Let's Eat, and we're looking at the feast of Leviticus 23 and how those feasts point us to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Last week, we established that the word feast is the Hebrew word madim, and it translates directly to appointed time. So the feast that we're going to be studying in this series are literally appointed times given to us by God to celebrate aspects of the redemption story. And we talked about how God is a God of rhythms, that he established these rhythms from the very beginning, that he made us to be creatures of rhythm. In the very creation story, we, we, we find Rhythms in the, in the calendar that he set up for the Jewish people, we find these rhythms. In the way the universe works, and in every part of the universe, there is these rhythms. We were never intended to be people that just fly by the seat of our pants. We were intended to live within these rhythms. And so Leviticus chapter 23 lists eight feasts for the Jews to celebrate, to have a consistent rhythm that would point them over and over and over back to the story of redemption. And they would keep this rhythm every single year at these appointed times. They could never have any kind of excuse about forgetting the story because these appointed times kept the story in front of them every single day. As Christians, I think we need some of that, right? We, we need to be reminded often. We need to have rhythms. So last week we talked about the first rhythm and that's Sabbath. That every seventh day, we are to rest unto the Lord. That throughout the week, we're to have pockets of rest every day. Turning our hearts intentionally upward. Uh, you might call that a devotional time. Today, we're going to talk about the rhythm and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. In 1494, the Duke of Milan commissioned a not-yet-famous 42-year-old painter to paint a large portrait in the monastery Santa Maria della Grazia. It was 15 by 29 feet and took three years to complete. Eli, you can go ahead and put the, put the, the painting up on the, the next slide. There it is. Okay, Eli, uh, can you tell me 
what painting this is? Boom. That's my kid. That's a homeschooler right there. The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. It is the work that made him famous. This work was his first claim to fame. This work earned him later commissions that would earn him even more fame and acclaim. Uh, things like the Mona Lisa. And this, this painting is the subject of countless papers, studies, and many, many spinoffs. It is one of the most well-known paintings of all time. And this painting has, has a number of distinctives that, that if you were to study this painting are, are unique about this painting. Like the way that he uh, tried a new method to, to paint on a dry fresco and then that didn't turn out so well and this was almost destroyed because it almost flaked off within just a couple of generations of his life. Or how each of the characters in this painting were modeled after specific individuals. Or, or the various ways that symbolism is present in the painting. In things like the way that each of the characters are holding their hands. The things that are on the table. The colors that are used, especially as they signify the characters. But one of the un- most unique parts and mo- one of the most distinctive features of this painting is the perspective. Leonardo da Vinci was known for his love of symmetry. And this painting uses a number of techniques in order to achieve a near-perfect symmetry. And it's more than just the number of people on each side of the painting and groupings. It's more than just the size of the table. What I want you to notice in this painting is the way that da Vinci paints all of the sight lines. In the sight lines of this painting, what you will see, for example, is that the frescoes on the wall on each side all move inward, diagonally. The, the room sharply narrows toward the center, right? Uh, on, on the sides of the painting, it's wide, and then it narrows into the middle. The, the windows that are behind Jesus are symmetrically smaller, on the right and the left, and the larger one is in the middle. Or, or the way that the lines on the ceiling all fade backward. This all together accomplishes a couple of things. First, it draws a person into the painting, right? It gives you this perspective almost as if you are actually inside the scene. That's the first thing that this accomplishes. But secondly, and most importantly, what this perspective purposely does is it draws your eyes to one place. Jesus. Jesus is not merely in the middle of the painting. The sight lines are purposely drawn in order to draw your eyes to him. Now I want to show you, uh, this was from the museum where uh, da Vinci's masterpiece, uh, I'm sorry, not museum, uh, monastery, uh, where, where it's, it's kept. Uh, this is a, a version of this painting that shows you the symmetry uh, involved. This, this shows all of the ways that the lines point forward directly to one place, Jesus The way that da Vinci accomplished this is he purposely paints the lines so that the so-called vanishing point of the painting is directly behind Jesus' head, right? 
So when you look at this painting, your eyes are purposely drawn to Jesus. Now here's what's cool. Da Vinci used an ingenious method in order to achieve such perfect symmetry. At the very beginning, what he did was he took a hammer and a nail and he put it in the wall directly where the center of Jesus' head was going to be. Then he took strings and he tied those strings around that nail and he pulled them in the various directions where you see those lines. He pulled those strings along those directions to mark the ends of the tables, the floor lines, the ceiling lines, and edges, right? And so then once he had the proper perspective marked out with these diagonal lines, he could remove the nail and fill in the scene. It's pretty cool, right? So to condense that down, in this painting, a hammer and nail draw the sight lines to Jesus. A hammer and nail are used to point all eyes to Christ during the Last Supper. With a hammer and a nail, Da Vinci said, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. My friends, this is exactly what Jesus himself was doing during this meal. Jesus was about to have a hammer and nails draw all the sight lines of this meal to himself. Now, what is incorrect about this meal is that it is called the Last Supper. Because it's not the Last Supper at all. As a matter of fact, my son asked me this question a couple weeks ago. He said, why is it called the Last Supper? That's actually not a very good way to describe it. The more accurate way to describe this is the First Supper. Because what we're going to see today is that this is the fulfillment of everything that the Passover symbolized. And it lays to rest the Old Covenant. But it was also the establishment of a new symbol of a new covenant. And so this was the beginning of a new practice. This was the first Lord's Supper. And so, like Da Vinci, today I'm going to show you how the sight lines of this meal point to Jesus because of a hammer and nails. We're going to skip past me comparing myself to Da Vinci, and we're going to start with the Passover. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So at this point, the Israelites have been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. God has heard their cries and he's come to set them free. He calls Moses from the wilderness and sends him to the Pharaoh with this simple command, let my people go. Now, of course, we know Pharaoh ain't trying to hear that. He's got lots and lots of free labor, and he doesn't want to let that go. And there's no way that this exiled member of the Egyptian court is going to come in here and tell him what to do. So God begins to punish the Egyptians with this series of plagues. And every single one of these plagues, by the way, is directly striking down an Egyptian deity. Okay, these weren't random plagues. These are theological shots fired. These are specifically targeted, establishing God as the only true God. But nine times, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And so we come to the climax of the plagues, which is the death of the firstborn. And again, this is not just a random punishment. We've talked before about the idea of primogeniture, the the passing on of a person's estate to the oldest son. This is a time in history when a firstborn son is not just a firstborn son. He is the father's dynasty. Um... When Eli was three, uh, we watched a special on the History Channel about the Exodus. And in this uh, particular show, the Pharaoh had a very distinct accent. And I couldn't figure out where the accent was from, uh, what kind of accent they were trying to do. But there there was this part of the show where he's referring to his newborn son. And he says, He is my dynasty. And our dynasty will last forever. And so, finding that hilarious, I started repeating this over and over and over. And so I began to look at my son, Eli, and I would say to him, My dynasty, how long will our dynasty last? And he would play along and he would say, Our dynasty will last forever. And I would love it. Then he started to ruin it by not playing along anymore. Because I'd be like, how long will our dynasty last? And he'd be like, cheeseburgers. And I'm like, all right, we're not going to play this game anymore. But to this day, I still at times refer to him as 
my dynasty. Eli, boy, you're my dynasty. <laughs> so, God was not merely taking a firstborn. He was taking their dynasty. But this was also the first of the ten plagues that he put a condition on the Israelites. In the other nine plagues, the Israelites stood by and watched as God judged the Egyptians. I was listening to a, a, a podcast from the Bible Project um, a couple of weeks ago, and they pointed out this detail that I don't know why, I've never noticed, right? In the plague of darkness, it specifically says that it was dark in all the land, and, and, and so we picture that, right? We, we, we see the, the lights go out. But it also specifically says that it was dark in the land except for the places where the Israelites lived. And I don't know why I've never missed that detail. Okay, so it's dark everywhere except for specifically light over Goshen. (laughs) Darkness and one cone of light. And the Israelites have light wherever they go. And I try to imagine in a funny way, you know, Israelites walking down into Egyptian territory and a small cone of light following them wherever they go. I don't know if it happened that way. But here we have the the final judgment and the Israelites for the first time have a condition on themselves. In this plague, God tells the Israelites, if you don't want to be wrapped up in judgment too, you need to do something. And so he instructs them to take a spotless lamb and sacrifice it to the Lord. And they're to take hyssop and they're to dip it in the blood of the lamb. And then they're to paint their doorpost with it. And in doing so, their household will be covered by the innocent blood of the lamb. And the Lord will pass over their house. So at the beginning of the chapter... In, in, in chapter 12, God gives them the rhythm, right? He says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So they are going to start their calendar year in this way. They begin their year by celebrating that God freed them from slavery in Egypt. And so their consistent rhythm will be to have this holy assembly in the first month of the year, setting the stage for the rest of the year. They're they're saying we begin with the freedom given to us by the blood of the Lamb. And ever since that day, devout Jews have started their year in this way, by looking back and celebrating their freedom from Egypt. But those who are not Messianic Jews have missed something very important. What they've missed is the fulfillment of the Passover. They spent all their time looking back that they forgot to look forward. Specifically, they failed to see how the Passover was fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. You see, Jesus had a common practice during the course of his ministry. He would often describe the ways in which everything in the Old Testament was written about him. In John 5, 39 and 46, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. During a conversation with with two people in 
the book of Luke after his resurrection. Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he opens the Old Testament and he goes, this is concerning me, this is concerning me, this is concerning me. It's, it's about me. In Matthew chapter 5, he says that his mission is to fulfill the law and the prophets. In one of my favorite passages in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue and Jesus reads a scroll. And, and on that scroll is a passage from the book of Isaiah. And in Luke 4, it says that he reads that passage in Isaiah and then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down in front of the people and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, Now this has come true. Here I am. And it says that all the people are gasping and they're like, who is, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, how could he sit here and say in the synagogue, this is about me? But Jesus did this over and over and over. We, we, he would point to things in the Old Testament and he would say, I have fulfilled this. This is about me. I have come to fulfill this. And what doesn't get talked about enough, and perhaps maybe you've never heard this before, but Jesus does the very same thing with the Passover before his own death. Like he did with so many other things, he pointed at the Passover meal and effectively said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in doing so, he ushered in the new covenant with something we call the Lord's Supper. And we might rightly call it the First Supper. So here is point number one, the Lord's Supper was a reframing of the Passover. And in case you're thinking, dear sweet God, he is now just starting point number one. Calm down, okay? We started church at 4 p.m. instead of 5.30. That means I have an extra hour and a half to preach, okay? You did this, right? So let's look at uh, the passage where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22 Verses 14 through 20. Now, you guys know that with my voice like this, I could never last another hour and a half. So, mercy and grace upon you. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. It says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. Oh my gosh. I found a typo in my Bible. I'm sorry that this has never happened to me before, but here it says he reclined at table instead of the table. Who do I write about this? Who do I send an email to? <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until 
the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So, what's the first thing that we see here? The first thing that we see here is in verse 15, where it says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover meal. The one that we just described from Exodus chapter 12. The one that, he, that God instituted in the Exodus. They're eating the Passover meal. At the appointed time for them to be celebrating, being covered by the blood of a spotless lamb to free them from death, Jesus is going to point at this very celebration and tell them, from now on, you are going to celebrate how I have accomplished your redemption. We, we cannot miss what he commands them to do in their future celebrations of this meal. Because what he commands them radically changes what they are celebrating. What they are commemorating. Again, up to this point, every single time they would eat this meal, they were doing so in remembrance of the exodus. That's what God commanded them to do, right? Exodus 12, 25 through 27 says, When your children ask you what this Passover is about, you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. So it's unmistakable. Right there in the scriptures in Exodus 12, God tells them, Eat this meal, and when you do, remember the Exodus. But what does Jesus now say in Luke 22, verse 19? He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Not Egypt. Not, not the exodus any longer. Now, when you continue to keep the command to celebrate this meal, you're going to do so remembering something completely different. You're going to do so in remembrance of me. And so here, very clearly, Jesus takes the string and he ties it around the Passover and then he ties the other end of the string around himself. All eyes on me. And like da Vinci, he's going to accomplish this via hammer and nails. Jesus is effectively saying in the past, every year when you would celebrate this meal, in remembrance of Israel being brought out of Egyptian slavery, now I'm going to give you a new focus. Now as often as you eat this supper, you'll do so in remembrance of me, of how I'm going to bring you out of spiritual slavery, of how you are going to be covered by the blood of this lamb. 
from now on, the celebration will no longer be about God sparing you from the death of your firstborn. It is going to be about God sparing you through the death of his firstborn. After this meal, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried unjustly, found guilty of crimes that he did not commit. And then a hammer and nails are going to take this bloody lamb and fasten him to a cross of wood, covering that wooden cross with his innocent blood. His death is what saves us from the judgment of death. By his stripes, we are healed, and by his blood, judgment passes over us. There is no one that makes this correlation more explicit than the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So here's what we need to understand. Jesus is purposely reframing this feast. Purposely. There's there's, there's no mistake about it. He is purposely reframing this feast. And he is not only showing that the Passover has been fulfilled, like he has fulfilled so many other things and is about to fulfill even more things, he is also instituting a new celebration. He is saying the Passover is fulfilled, the law and the prophets are fulfilled, now here is a brand new covenant. And I'm not just coming up with that on my own, okay? I'm quoting Jesus directly. He says it in verse 20. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten. He said, this is, my, is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. I'm replacing the old with the new. I am the only one that has the authority to do that because I am God, is what he's saying. The veil separating man from the holy of holies is about to be torn. The Gentiles are about to be grafted in. Circumcision of the flesh is about to be replaced with the circumcision of the heart. The Passover is now being replaced with the Lord's Supper. From now on, you will do this in remembrance of me. John Bloom from Desiring God puts it this way. He says, the reason the Lord instituted the Passover was so that the people of Israel would always remember and proclaim their redemption from Egypt. The Lord's Supper was instituted for the same reason, to remember and proclaim the redemption from sin. And so, this is the first supper. The hammer and nails drawing all the sight lines clearly to Jesus. This is the laying to rest of the old covenant and the inception of the new covenant. So for us as new covenant Christians, we don't celebrate the Passover in the same way as the old covenant saints did. Their Passover celebration was pointing backward. It was pointing backward to an event in their people's history. But little do they know that that also pointed forward. 
It pointed forward to the event that is at the center of history. And our communion celebration points to that place, the day when we were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so communion is to Christians as the Passover was to Israel. Communion is to Christians as the Passover was to Israel. So, uh, I have one more point, and I, I promise I'll be brief. But we can't close out without clearly pointing out that just like the old covenant, the new covenant also comes with commands. Jesus didn't just say, do this in remembrance of me. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So point number two. Christians celebrate the Last Supper to regularly reset our sight lines on Jesus. Christians celebrate the Last Supper to regularly reset our sight lines on Jesus. I want to briefly take us back to a verse in Exodus 12. Because I want to establish that communion is something that was meant to be a practice that was kept. For all time. In Exodus 12, 14, God institutes the Passover and he says, This day shall be a, memo- a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So here I want you to see that the statute lasts forever. Eli. The statute lasts forever, just like our dynasty will last forever. Statute lasts forever. The feast is to be kept, even though the feast is going to be changed by Jesus. The statute remains. And again, Jesus, being God, is the only one with the authority to change the feast. We cannot miss that essential truth, okay? Jesus has the authority to say, I have fulfilled this. I am establishing this. But this statute lasts forever. So, in Luke 22, Jesus makes it very clear that he's beginning something new that will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God. He is saying this will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, let's take a look at how the Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Specifically there, I, I want us to zero in on verse 26 because it tells us the role of the Lord's Supper. Let me read it again. Verse 26, as often as you drink, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In drinking the cup and in eating the bread, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It is a proclamation. The Lord's Supper is not only something we do in remembrance, it is also something we do in anticipation. We are remembering what he has done for us, and we are anticipating what he's going to do. We're proclaiming to each other and to the world that the Savior gave us life. The Savior came to save us from our sins, and the Savior is going to come back, and he's going to make all things new. We're proclaiming his death until he comes. We are doing something that speaks the message to proclaim what he has done until he comes back. Now, unlike the Passover, there's not a prescribed time for how often we are to take the Lord's Supper. But we are clearly given the idea that it is, it is to be something that is regular and consistent. So with that thought, I need to take a moment to do some serious business with you. I need to be completely open and transparent with you guys. And say, in front of you and on the internet where nothing can ever be deleted, I have been failing you as a pastor in this area. Badly. For a long time, I have not led us in a consistent pattern, rhythm of communion in this church. I'm the one who hasn't consistently scheduled it. I've allowed myself to live with the excuse that I'm really busy, I'm juggling a lot of things at once, I'm not great at following a calendar. I've also allowed the pandemic to continue to affect our calendar, right? We couldn't do any of this during the pandemic. And so, like a number of other things in our church, it just became something we'd get back to doing when we could. But here's the deal. Th those are all lousy excuses. The simple fact is God command us, commanded us and designed us to follow these rhythms, right? And I've done a terrible job of leading this church in the rhythm of communion. And I need to repent before you publicly for that. Passover as we saw, was a specific calendared thing every single year. Communion isn't given a specific date. And I'm not great with things that aren't given specific dates. <laughs> now, some churches choose to do this monthly, some quarterly, some weekly, some daily. But they decide on some kind of rhythm and they do it consistently, right? And I've not done that. And that is a failure of leadership that I need to apologize for and commit to changing in this church. So, I would like for us to begin a rhythm together. That rhythm will be to receive the Lord's Supper one Sunday per month. We'll be monthly taking the Lord's Supper. I don't know if that's the rhythm that we'll stay with for a long time, but we're at least going to start there. Obviously, we will be doing that today. But before we get to that, there's something else that I would like you to do at home this week. 
I mentioned at the beginning of the series that each week I want to give you something to do at home during the series. I want to give you something to celebrate at home. So here's what I would like you to do. In the Passover, families would eat a meal celebrating that they had been covered by the blood and saved from judgment. So this week, at some point, eat a meal together as a family. And as you eat that meal, I want you to pray specifically, thanking God for covering your home with his blood. If you have family members that are not saved, pray for their salvation at this meal. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you to make this awkward, okay? If, if that unsaved family member is like right next to you, don't start your meal like, Lord, we thank you for saving every one of us except John who desperately needs your salvation before we eat. I'm not, I'm not asking you to do that, okay? John is heading to hell in a handbasket. If you don't save him right now, Jesus, don't, don't have that meal. What I'm saying is, as opportunity allows you, share a meal as a family and celebrate that Christ has saved you. Talk about it together over the meal as you eat. Walk your kids through that gospel story. Talk them through their questions that they ask during this. Walk them through gratitude. Proclaim the Lord's death. Anticipate his second coming. And fill your hearts with gladness as you share this meal together. Have a feast unto the Lord in your house celebrating what Christ has done for you. I'll even let you pick what you're going to (laughs) eat. So, now we're going to celebrate together as a church, shall we? On the back table, you will find some of these. Now, I need to warn you that as a result of my neglect in allowing us to go so long, uh, these individual uh, communion shots uh, busted in the box. And I didn't realize it until I opened them just before church started. And I had to throw half of them away because they were either empty or too sticky or not functioning at all. So, uh, proceed with caution. I I think the ones that are left are still good. Um, And I'll have Grace uh, start to play softly. Um, And everyone who is going to participate... Uh, we'll go back to the table and retrieve the elements and return to their seat. But before we do that, uh, I also want to be clear that Scripture teaches that this celebration comes with a warning, that this is not something that we do flippantly. Paul says that we have to examine ourselves lest we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. He says that we're not to eat or drink this in an unworthy manner. That means if you are living in unrepentant sin, don't eat. If you are unsaved, don't eat. If you have some kind of conflict that is due to you not making peace, don't eat until you do. And these are not unfair or unreasonable or exclusionary requirements. They're they're sensible things, right? How much sense does it make to celebrate being covered by the blood if you aren't covered by the blood, right? How much sense does it make to celebrate being freed from sin if you're actively holding on to sin? If you're in those situations and you still take communion, the only reason you would take communion is because you feel like you're supposed to. 
And if that's the case, well, then that empties it to just being an empty religious ritual. Or maybe you feel like other people will notice and judge you if you don't take it. But if that's the case, then you're just reducing it to a performance. No one is going to judge you for not participating. And if they are judging you for not participating, they shouldn't be participating either. And if they drink in judgment over you, they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Is that clear? So, examine yourself to see whether or not you ought to refrain for now. And if you ought to refrain for now, praise God for that. You're making a wise decision, and you're taking a great step toward repentance in whatever area of life you need to repent. And I encourage you to continue that. Take the next steps toward repentance. What better day than today to keep walking down that path? So with those things being said, I'm going to close our sermon in prayer. And then I'll invite you to go back to the table uh, and, and bring the elements back to your seat. God, thank you so much for the blood of the covenant. For giving us your body and your blood to set us free from